The crunch of the ute's tyres down the road, the sound of his breathing, his heart, he thought it would kill him, and his mouth was that dry. He had hoped the dark would hasten for cover. He'd been watching it coming, the dusk soaking down the trees, the shadows dissolving. They might make it if only the winter dark could arrive. Robert Strange had heard the fear in Glen Turner's voice there in the shadows, crouched behind the ute. But he had also feared the dark, because as it rose to hide them, Turnbull's gun would begin to hurry. It was just before six o'clock, knock-off time, nearly tea time. The road had been empty for the last 40 minutes, just Strange and Turner and Ian Turnbull, the two white utes, the brigolo scrub, the koalas and other little animals keeping quiet, the cloudless sky slowly lifting into the night. Then the raised gun, the quiet, urgent voices, the shots, the pleas. Now Turnbull's rasping voice was gone and Turner's panicked breath was gone and Strange could stop talking, stop this mad monologue to Turnbull holding the twenty-two, saying, we're unarmed, we're not here to hurt you. His mouth so dry he could barely get the words out and he needed to keep talking. There had been six explosions from the mouth of the gun. In the silence afterwards, Turnbull's little red taillights had grown small. The dark came down like a door, only a little light in the sky to the west. The tall scrub, the black grass, the man now lying on the earth with his head towards the trees. Far away in Dubbo, Strange and Turner's boss at the Office of Environment and Heritage, Arthur Snook, was getting a call that Turner's emergency position indicating radio beacon, his EPIRB, had been activated. He tried Turner's phone. He tried Strange's. Tried again. Strange's phone came to life. Arthur, is that you? Arthur, Glenn's been shot. Chase the ambulance. He's bleeding badly. Where are you? Snook shouted down the line. Talga Lane, Talga Lane. The call dropped out. Strange went back out to Turner. He pulled him to a sitting position, cradling his head. Blood came out of Turner's mouth, shining in the cold light of the headlights. He wasn't breathing. Strange dropped him, pressed his big hands against Turner's chest, pumped, pumped. Come on, Glenn, come on, Glenn, you can't do this. We've got to get home. And he realised Glenn was dead. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Heather Lewis and today we're joined by author Kate Holden talking about her true crime novel The Winter Road, which covers the murder of environmental officer Glenn Turner by a farmer Ian Turnbull in July 2014. Kate, thanks so much for joining us today. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. So the murder of Glenn Turner by Ian Turnbull and the case's subsequent trial really rocked New South Wales for many years. When did you first come across the case and what inspired you to write a book about it? I read about the case when it happened in 2014, July 2014. Mm. Like everyone else, I was, you know, shocked by this, the, the murder of an environmental officer doesn't happen in Australia. Um, and uh, then I let it go. I was pretty much just keeping an eye on it every now and it came along and I, and I thought it was a, a really compelling tragedy. But it wasn't actually my idea to write about it. I was approached by my publisher who uh, knew my work and they knew that I was not a writer of these kind of books, but they thought that I might be someone who could could bring the story to life. And so they entrusted me with this um, this terrific story. I said yes, not realising it was going to be three and a half years of incredibly hard work, 
but such an education and such a privilege to write about this. So I was really given this story as a gift. That's interesting because, as you said, it's, it's very different from your previous two books, In My Skin and The Romantic, which are both very personal memoirs. How different and challenging was the process of writing this true crime book for you? Yeah. Well, my two memoirs are, you know, both about me and, um, you know, and required no research or, or anything exactly, like that. Yeah. Just a lot of soul searching. But um, in the meantime, I do a lot of freelancing. So I'd been um, building up a quite a big body of work, interviewing people, um, writing features and a little bit of opinion writing and so on. Definitely nothing like a true crime story. So this was a huge learning curve for me. I began by realising that the story was not just about these two men and their tragedy mm. but um all the things that led up to that so i had to kind of piece together the, the the crime from um all the other material that was available and tell their story really fully and that was going to be challenging because there was almost no one re- willing to talk to me uh and then secondly that the story actually extended way way beyond this one incident in cropper creek and has its origins not in 2014, but really in 1714 probably. So I took the story all the way back through settlement of Australia and all the different um, kind of cultural histories and ecological histories and environmental histories, technological histories, and um, especially the philosophical histories of why we treat land the way we do. And that that even started before white people ever came to Australia. So I immediately plunged into about three PhDs worth of research. It was insane. Um, I bit off so much more than I could really chew, but I, I desperately love academic work and research. So I had a great time reading everything about the history of Australia and especially that part of the country and everything to do with this story. And then I wrote the first draft extremely quickly and it somehow came together. I'm, I have to say... <laughs> I'm quite impressed by myself because I had to master so much material so fast and it was all out of my field. You know, none of this is my area. Um, I was really helped because my partner is Tim Flannery, who's a writer of histories, environmental histories, and also some Mm. history about Australia. So he had a really great library in our house and also in his side, his mind, and um, and some really, you know, useful perspectives as well. So I I had someone on my team. But basically, I just had to do the rest of it all by myself and um, and just trust that it would all somehow come together on the page. <laughs> hmm. And yeah, as you said, it's not just a true crime novel, but it's sort of an investigation of our colonial relationship with the land that we reside on. When in the development of the book did that sort of angle come in? Well, I wasn't looking for it exactly, but what I could see straight away was a really stark scenario and also my desire that that stark scenario be a bit more complicated and interesting so I saw Mm. this encounter on the winter road as I thought of it so there's Ian Turnbull a farmer man of the land very traditional patriarch very um, much a a man of his district um, a man of the old way of doing things Um, and then I've got Glenn Turner on the other side who was not an environmental activist he was paid to be an environmental compliance officer a bit like a you know a traffic inspection officer yeah Um, Nevertheless, he believed in nature and he wanted to protect it and he felt very strongly about the laws that protect nature. Um, And he was representing another, you know, that that side of things. And I guess saw them not so much just in their own tragedy but as kind of avatars of a whole background of assumptions and values and histories that had come to be in the bodies of those two men, one of whom was about to destroy the other. Um, And so I I just, I guess I just realised that 
where they were standing was um, contested land. It was unceded land. So the First Nations people um, who had had that land were not there at that moment. And why was that? And that the, the violence of those frontier wars up in the northwest of New South Wales really resonated with this act of violence that was happening in the 21st century. So I took it back to that. And, of course, it, if you want to write about First Nations dispossession, and you have to work out why that was. And so I, I, I guess I could have gone back forever, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I realised that I had to cut it off. So I, I really start with the colonial project and work my way backwards into why these two men were about to destroy each other. Another thing that's very striking about the book is its level of detail, whether it's in recounting events such as Turner's murder and the trial that followed or describing the surrounds of Cropper Creek. What was your process of research to capture such detail in the book? Oh, look, it's so nice of you to ask me about research because I did put so much work into this. Yeah. Well, I was living in inner city Melbourne at the time. I'm, I'm, I live in New South Wales now. But um, I was in my little office, you know, in St Kilda, trying to imagine this this part of the country which is so remote and, and alien to me. So I actually dragged my whole family up there, first of all, to have a look. We drove 16 hours, you know, all the way up to Cropper Creek and drove around and got the feeling of the landscape, tried to talk to people. I didn't have a lot of luck with that. It's a very closed community and they were extremely yeah. reluctant to speak about such painful issues, understandably. But I had at least got to see the place. I went down Talga Lane and I saw where the, the murder had happened and I could really feel the vastness and remoteness of that place. It's an hour out of even Moree. It's so far away from, from urban centres and um, the loneliness there uh, and the also uh, the, the impact of the clearing. So that landscape, there are some trees left, but most of it is cleared. And that really drove home to me the, the ecological story that I was telling as well. So there was all of that. And then for the, the crime story, because both of my protagonists were dead, so Glenn Turner was murdered and Ian Turnbull died before I began in jail, serving his murder term, uh, his fa their families weren't comfortable with speaking to me. And so I really had to piece the whole thing together just from the media reports and the court documents and anything else I could get hold of. So it was like reconstructing a fresco, an ancient fresco that's fallen on the floor and just having to piece together absolutely minuscule details from this account and that account and squaring things that didn't add up and then realising a year later that, of course, there was this one document that filled in the gap that I'd always wondered about or that there was actually a whole part of this picture that I hadn't even realised existed but a, a new document would suddenly open up a, an avenue. And I had to trace all of the, the, the original part problem in this case, which was the land clearing that Ian Turnbull and his family were doing, which Glenn Turner was investigating. And that was a very complicated legal story. And then the murder obviously had its own, um, own challenges to tell um, about. And then the aftermath also, I mean, this crime didn't stop with Glenn Turner's murder and Ian Turnbull's conviction. It actually rolled on to take apart the Turnbull's family even in the courts. So there was a lot of documentation. I read a lot of court documents trying to just get the human story out of all of this. And you mentioned that land clearing, which is, I guess, the impetus of the conflict between Turnbull and Turner. Why was Turnbull so determined to clear native vegetation on his property? And on the other hand, why was Turner so adamant in investigating him for it? Yeah, well, the, this story takes place up in the northwest of New South Wales in a very specific bit of country, which is considered about the richest agricultural land in Australia. 
Um, it's basaltic plain and it's extremely fertile. It's also where just some of the last bits of endangered brigolo scrub are. And where in the little town, Cropper Creek, where Ian Turnbull and his family lived and had properties, there were these two blocks which still had bush on them, scrub. They'd just been grazed and a little bit cleared, but they were like old-timey blocks and they were owned by some old-timey brothers who were, you know, getting on. Uh, and everyone knew that the soil under those trees would be amazing if you could get to it. But unfortunately, they were covered in, in endangered species, including koalas as well, so not just plant species. So the Turnbulls got their eye on this. They knew they were, the old brothers were ready to sell and they, they bought them. And I think they knew that they would never get permission. I, I can't say for sure. They applied for permission, but not very uh, diligently. And um, when they didn't get permission... It didn't really make any difference because they'd already started clearing. They started clearing those blocks even before they'd exchanged the contracts on the sales. They were very keen because if they could convert those grazing blocks into cropping blocks, they stood to make millions of dollars, which, in fact, they've done. So um, Glenn Turner was the, the investigative officer of the compliance officer charged with investigating this, looking into it. He thought he could just have a quick word to Ian Turnbull and say, hey, you know, you, you know, you're not going to be able to do this, sorry. The Turnbulls on their side... I think had looked around and seen that other people were doing illegal clearing and getting away with it. And they, you know, they decided to take the chance, I think. I've got to be careful how I speak about it legally because I, you know, yeah. I can only speak about what was proved in the courts, but it was proved in the courts that they definitely did engage in illegal clearing with the motive of improving the value of those blocks. And off they went. Um, and Glenn Turner proceeded with his investigations, but found that he could investigate as much as he wanted, but nothing actually was going to happen and no one was going to be able to stop those Turnbulls clearing. So that's where it landed. And um, he was the one that the Turnbulls fixed upon as being responsible. And you mentioned in the book that up until Turner's death in 2014, an Office of uh, Environment and Heritage officer hadn't been killed on duty in a number of decades. I think it was maybe the 70s that was the last time. Or roughly around then. Do you think that the death of somebody like Turner was inevitable? And do you think it's bound to happen again? Oh, gosh, I hope not. I, can't, I hope not. It was a terrible thing. You know? And look, I'm not sure that any environmental officer had been killed before. There have been um, activists like Juanita Phillips who was killed for opposing uh, development. Yeah. Um, but this was so shocking, you know, Heather, because um, it was like a policeman being killed in the line of duty, except that Glenn Turner was not armed. He was doing an administrative job, basically, and he lost his life in such a brutal way. Now, when he died, a lot of talk went on in the district and on the media, in on radio with, with people kind of weighing in. And some people said, look, this is always going to happen. It's because there's going to be, there's been this antagonism and tension between farmers and, you know, environmental regulation, you know, people who enforce it forever. It's just been building to a head. You know, Alan Jones had been on the radio years before that saying this is going to end up in murder, which I think people didn't find helpful because actually there are lots of people who uh, engage very well with environmental regulations. Most farmers do the right thing. Most farmers understand that there's authority and law and so on. The idea that this had been inevitable kind of brings into play the idea that Ian Turnbull had a justification for what he did. He certainly claimed mm -hmm. he did. He, he claimed he'd been persecuted and harassed by the authorities in the person of Glenn Turner. It wasn't, a, it wasn't really a contest between equal people having some kind of massive ding-dong over an ideological point. This is a man who took out a gun and shot an unarmed government officer in front of a witness and then rationalised this. 
and his family continues to rationalise it. I think we like to imagine that there are these kind of great tragic gothic narratives in Australia, but we must remember that they're really real people. Glenn Turner had a real body and a real family, and there's a real gap in the world where he would have been if this hadn't been considered an ideological battle. There's also there's a, there's a very curious phrase you use towards the end of the book where you say that the story of the White Road and Turnbull and Turner is a very male story. And you also mentioned how Turnbull was kind of the archetypal, you know, Aussie farmer bloke. I guess I'm curious how you think this sort of toxic masculinity that Australia kind of has in its portrayal of men, how much that played a part in what happened at Cropper Creek? Oh, that's such a good question. Yes, I did. I, I do say at the end, there's a very male story. There are very few women. Sorry, the women in it are witnesses. Um, and yeah. it's the men who are in the action, acting and, can you know, um, contesting things. Again, I look at Ian Turnbull, I was really hoping he would turn out to be a very complicated character. I never did get very close to him because there were just so many shields up. So for all I know, he was very complex, but he came across in what I did see of him as a very traditional patriarch, very aggressive. He had a reputation for being very aggressive to his own sons and um, quite controlling. He really seemed to exemplify that old kind of frontier man. You know, and that frontier man, we often celebrate for that kind of the grit and the endurance and the hard slog and all that kind of bushwhacking and, you know, the the boiling the billy and all that kind of stuff. But the dark side of that is that frontier man also was someone who went out and killed First Nations people or poisoned wallabies, you know, would go out and, and just kill native wildlife. In the book, I, I borrow an idea from a writer called Ross Gibson about the effect of the trauma of that violence. And I think this plays out in a quite a, you know, traditionally masculine way in the sense that it's a repressed trauma. Um, it's not spoken of. So he talks about faces of people who you know did or saw atrocities in the, in the frontier days and photographs of them and how their faces have this deep stun kind of their, their the violence is the violence towards them as well in the sense that they are going to be forever carrying this, the guilt and the trauma of what they've seen and done, and that this plays out in a very masculine way of displacement. So you're, you're all messed up inside, you take it out on those around you, you blame others, and Ian Turnbull, who had was dragging his family into a, what was turning out to be a catastrophe, blamed Glenn Turner for what had happened. He didn't see that it was his actions that he had instigated. He saw Glenn Turner standing there in the road arguing about it and he just went, it's him, it's him, it's not me. That seems to me like a very old and poisonous story in this country. For my last question, the book touches on what happens as a result of Turner's death on an environmental, legislative and personal level for those involved. But if you're still following the case, have there been any developments that have happened recently that you couldn't make it into the book for timing reasons? Yeah, well, um, the the Turnbulls continue to, to kind of go on. So one thing is that um, they were sued for damages by both Glenn Turner's family and Robert Strange, the, the witness who'd been, um, you know, really traumatised by what he experienced. They both won their damages suits. But um, as far as I know, at publication, the Turnbulls had not paid out a cent to either of those people, those parties. Um, the, the two Turnbull brothers in the story, uh, I believe, are still antagonistic towards each other. 
Uh, and indeed, yesterday, Grant Turnbull was up for court uh, again on a very often deferred case, which is the clearing that Glenn Turner had seen on the day that he stopped and was killed by Ian Turnbull. So that clearing of 2014, Grant Turnbull has still not confronted court for that. And yes, yesterday, wow. it was put off yet again. Um, and in the meantime, those blocks have not been remediated, as far as I know, at least not at publication. Not a single tree has been replanted, I believe, and they continue to crop that land, making millions of dollars of profit. So the story's not finished, but I can't see how how it will ever end. It's Yeah. Yeah, it's just a story of ongoing sorrow and damage, I think. It's a real tragedy. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it and your lovely questions. The White Road by Kate Holden is published by Black Ink and is available for purchase on our website at goodreadingmagazine.com.au or at any good bookshop. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.